You're listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, friends, we are in Romans 13 today. We're making our way through the letter. This was not intentional that we would come to Romans 13, 1 to 7 on a holiday weekend. So happy Thanksgiving. Let's talk about government. Uh, welcome to church. As we approach another presidential election cycle, that too, uh, that is on the horizon for us here in the United States. As Christians, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Amen? We have a citizenship in heaven. And that is because of God's grace only. Because of Christ, account, on account of Christ and what he has done in the place of sinners, by faith we've been united to Jesus and are now declared righteous, forgiven of sin, and we have eternal life. We always will have it. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And now, in this life, we live in outposts of the kingdom of God called local churches. I don't know if you've ever thought about the local church like that. But this is an outpost of the kingdom of Christ on earth. We have been promised an eternal homeland in a heavenly country. The Lord will bring us there. And for now, we are pilgrims on the way. And while we are pilgrims and sojourners in this life, we are also citizens of the common kingdom of the world. We refer to it as the common kingdom because it is common to believers and unbelievers alike. The Lord has not left the common kingdom without institutions, without structures of authority. Nor has he been silent on how we, as his people, are to live now in relation to those institutions and in relation to those structures. So if you have your Bibles and you haven't done so already, open them to Romans 13. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 7 today. As you're turning, remember that for 11 chapters in the book of Romans, Paul had expounded the good news of Jesus Christ. He had expounded the law and the gospel and how they work together in God's economy of salvation. Paul had expounded and explained and extolled our union with the Lord Jesus by faith and everything that that means. For our justification, the declaration of righteousness, the forgiveness of our sins. Also, everything that our union with Christ means for our sanctification, the ongoing transformation of life. And Paul had extolled and expounded upon what our union with Christ means for our eternal hope. We have an unshakable inheritance that has been given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, beginning in Romans 12, In light of all that and grounded in that, Paul turns to consider how should we then live as Christians? You remember in the first eight verses of chapter 12, Paul appeals to us, he appeals to the saints that we present ourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord. We have been made into a holy priesthood. We now serve the Lord in the house that we are being made into for his sake. We are not to be conformed to this world, but are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is a work of God's spirit, and we live in step with that renewal. 
We are with humility and sober-mindedness to immerse ourselves in the church. We're to use our gifts for the good of our brothers and sisters. We're to use our gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. In verses 9 to 21, Paul exhorted us that our lives with one another in the church are to be characterized by three significant things. Genuine love for each other, humility, and then the pursuit and preservation of unity. Paul also gave exhortations as to how we are to deal with those outside the church who persecute us or seek to do us harm. You remember this from last Sunday. Romans 12 and verse 14, Paul writes, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then in verses 19 to 21, Paul tells us that we are not to seek revenge of any kind, but we're to leave that to the Lord. He will administer perfect justice. For our part, we are to do good to our enemies. We're to greet evil with kindness and love. And as I mentioned last week, the question is then raised. I trust you feel this. What about justice then? What about justice in this life? We understand God will make all things right in the end, eternally speaking, but what about justice and order now? Paul is going to speak to that in our text today. And he's going to continue to help us think about how we are to live as Christ's people on earth. Let's look now to the text. Romans 13, beginning in verse 1. Listen as I read. This is the word of God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Amen. We thank God for his word, every part of it. We thank God for Romans 13, 1 to 7. My plan this morning is to preach this message in two parts. Part one will be Paul's argument. Part one is Paul's argument. We're just going to look at it, consider it. Part two will be full of a number of reflections, pieces of application, and pastoral comments from me. So part two, reflection, application, and pastoral comments. Off we go, part one. 
Let's look to Paul's argument. Before we do, before we look back to the text, let's just talk real. Let's talk straight for just a moment. Governments are often corrupt in this fallen world. We all know that. Some more than others, but governments are often corrupt in this fallen world. And this has always been true. Paul, the writer of Romans, knew that personally. Remember, this letter is written to the church where? In Rome. The capital city of the most powerful, massive empire in the history of the world. The Roman government enacted many unjust laws. And not many years after this letter was written, Christians were being fed to wild animals and burned alive to serve as living torches in the gardens of Emperor Nero. So Paul did not write Romans 13 with some sunshine and rainbows view of government. We need to own that. Or to put it another way, Romans 13 does not only apply to like really good, upright government. Robert Haldane is a man I've referenced before in this series. He's a Scotsman from the 18th, 19th century, teaching in Geneva. So just to give you some context, he said these words. I'm going to say a lot today, so it's good for you to hear thoughts from other saints who have gone before us. He said, quote, the Roman Christians were under a despotism. They were under a despot, an authoritarian government, right? And those who read this epistle may live under a free government. But the duty of obedience is in both cases the same. The powers are under both equally to be obeyed, close quote. As we approach this passage, consider the Roman Christians. They had become, by the grace of God, through faith in Christ, they had become subjects of Christ's kingdom. They knew, like you know and I know, that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. And it would be easy enough for them to think that they had been released, therefore, from the requirement to obey human authority. Certainly, released from the requirement to obey a human authority that was not Christian. Paul is going to address that and nip that kind of thinking in the bud. I again quote Robert Haldane, Christians ought to give Paul's doctrine the most earnest heed, lest they be led away on this subject by the opinions of the world or of those who despise government. They ought to examine carefully what is here taught by the apostle without attempting to accommodate it to their preconceived views of civil liberty. It's a good word. This text is very simple. It's very clear. We should be subject to governing authorities. This is because God instituted them for the good of the common kingdom of the world. Civil government is the mechanism for order and the administration of justice in this life. And even paying taxes to the government is appropriate and good. And we should respect governing authorities. In those four sentences, I just gave you the point of Romans 13. It's very, very 
simple. Now, Jesus is our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our King. Amen. And for now, in Christ, we are to respect and submit to the authority of the civil government. In fact, because of our union with the Lord Jesus, we should be the best citizens. Last word before we look to verse 1. Realize this. To resist governing authorities is natural to fallen human beings. To resist government is natural to fallen man. So there is nothing inherently virtuous about resisting government. People of every religion, this this too, own this. People of every religion are prepared to use their religion as a pretense to not submit to civil government. And so what I hope we see in the words of Paul is yet another demonstration of the goodness and the uniqueness of the Christian faith. Because it is not like the others. It is not like the anarchist views of fallen man. And it is not like other world religions that would use religion to shirk subjection to government. Put your eyes on verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We are to submit to the civil government. Why? Because God is the one who establishes all institutional authority. As Christians, I've already stated this, we are citizens of the redemptive kingdom of Christ, and visibly speaking on earth, that's the church. We are a part of this that the Lord is doing. And we live in the world. We have a dual citizenship in two realms. The kingdom of Christ and that of civil authority. Dual citizenship. We live in both of these realms. And while we do, we are to submit to the authority of both. We must see that both the redemptive kingdom of Christ, the common kingdom of the world with its civil authority, we must see that both of these serve and have different functions. The church is an institution of God's saving and special grace. The state is an institution of God's common grace, common to all man. Verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Straightforward. It would be a mistake to think that because Christ has come, we are no longer subject to the authority of civil government. That would be wrong. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm always aware coming into a sermon like this, there is always a tendency among us, not just us here at CBC, but people, to hear what is not being said. So don't do that. Don't hear what I'm not saying. We also should not think that we own, oh, excuse me, blind allegiance to the government. That is not what's being said today. We do not owe blind allegiance to the civil government because our ultimate allegiance is to Christ. 
where the laws and the mandates of civil government clearly contradict the revealed will of God in his word, we are to obey God and not man. Having said that, we do not have license to disobey and disregard ordinances of the government that do not clearly contradict God's word. If we resist the government without clear warrant from the scriptures, Paul says that we will suffer the consequences. So in short, if our rulers, if our leaders in government do not command what God forbids, we obey them. It is that simple. Brief insertion here. You remember Daniel. Old Testament, prophet. This is the only time at CBC that you might ever hear the words, dare to be a Daniel, okay? Daniel, you remember, served in the Babylonian government. You remember this. The Babylonian empire was far, far from upright, brutal, savage, injustice all over the place. And Daniel was employed by that government. That's significant. And you remember how he navigated that. He served faithfully. He did his job. He discharged his duty. And it was only when the king's laws required idolatry that he refused to obey them. Only then. When the king's laws required idolatry, did Daniel refuse to obey? That's helpful. It's a helpful illustration from the scriptures. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 from Romans 13. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. He is God's minister for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Here's Paul's point. Civil government is not a terror to good works at the level of the common kingdom. Civil government is not a terror to good works at the level of the common kingdom. Even with corrupt governments, people are not punished for refusing to hurt their neighbor. And so, if we live seeking to do good to our neighbor, if we live seeking to be self-controlled, we have no reason to fear the sword of the state for that conduct. However, if we do what is evil here, if we do harm to our neighbor, we have reason to fear the sword of the state, which is the sword of temporal judgment. In this way, in this function, the government is God's servant. It is a manifestation of his righteous wrath and indignation against evil. And so, verse 5, Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So in submitting to civil authority, we avoid temporal judgment. That's clear enough. You don't break the law, you're not punished. Clear enough. But for Christians, there's more that we should and must say. 
We also submit to the government because we have a regard in our consciences for the institution which God's own authority has established. I don't know if you've thought about government like that. You see, this is an observation made by saints through history, and it's exactly right. Human beings, in general, obey laws of the land out of fear of punishment. It's true of everybody. Everybody that obeys the law obeys for that reason, to not be punished. If there was no punishment, then people would break every law that keeps them from doing what they want to do. If there's no punishment, I'll do what I want. That's how we all think. But for Christians, it should be different. We submit to the government out of conscious reverence for God because he is the one who has instituted government in the first place. Verses 6 and 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Is that really in the Bible? Yes, it is. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, to those whom taxes are owed. Revenue, to those whom revenue is owed. Respect, to whom respect is owed. Honor, to whom honor is owed. What are legitimate requirements of us when it comes to our submission to civil government? Taxes. This would have been in Paul's day, our equivalent of like personal and property taxes along with like poll taxes. Revenue is the word used in your ESV. That would have been taxes on goods, like sales taxes in our vernacular. Toll roads in our vernacular, that kind of thing. What's another legitimate requirement of us when it comes to submission to government? Respect and honor. Taxes, revenue, respect, and honor. As Christians, Paul says, we owe these things to the civil government. And you realize Jesus said nothing different. Matthew 22. Many may be familiar with this passage. You don't need to turn, just listen. There were some Pharisees that came to Jesus. They were plotting to trap him, to entangle him, to get him in trouble. And so they sent disciples to Jesus. So disciples of the Pharisees are sent by the Pharisees to Christ, along with some of the Herodians. So this is a mashup of people. Religious, political, the whole thing's going on, trying to trap Jesus. And they... speak a lot of sunshine and flowers to him. And initially, teacher, we know that you're true and that you teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. They flatter him. Then they say, tell us then what you think. Now they're going to trap him. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. 
Now, we're familiar with that sentence. Render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's. Render unto God the things that are God's. And we hear that, and there's a part of us that rises up, and we say, yeah, but Jesus, everything is God's. Don't you know that? Jesus says, yeah, I know that. Everything is God's. And Jesus also very clearly understood what Paul is writing in Romans 13. Jesus clearly understood the reality of the redemptive kingdom, his kingdom, and then the kingdom of the world. He clearly understood that those two kingdoms had distinct functions. And he clearly understood that God is the one who has instituted government. So let's take our cue from the apostles and from our Savior and how we think about relating to government. So that was all part one, Paul's argument. Now we're into part two. This is reflection, application, and pastoral comments. So basically what I've got here is five points and a conclusion. Don't be nervous. I'm, I'm aware of, of time. Let me front load before I even give you number one. It is impossible for me to say everything or to nuance and qualify every statement. You wouldn't want me to do that. It would be a horrible sermon. I want you to know that I am not, in anything that I'm about to say, aiming to be a shock jock at all. My aims and motivations are three. One, the unity of the church around Jesus Christ. Two, to preserve the clarity of the mission of the church. Three, to defend Christian liberty. Those are my aims. We made it through Romans 11 without emptying the parking lot. And I'm hopeful that we can make it through this text today without doing the same. So like I said, five points and a conclusion in part two. Point one, massively important. The mission of the church as an institution and the callings of individual Christians in the society are different things. The mission of the church as an institution and the callings of individual Christians in the society are different things. That's point one. Literally, that's it. It's that straightforward. If we keep that fixed in our minds, that sentence alone will spare us from a multitude of errors. Point two. We are called to serve our neighbor through our vocation. We are called to serve our neighbor through our vocation. Now, for some Christians, and for some here at CBC, that vocation is in the realm of civil government. So hear this. It is a good thing for thoughtful Christians to give themselves to any number of pursuits in the political arena, in the judicial system, in the military in law enforcement, and in the public square. It is good. May we have more thoughtful Christians engaged in those various arenas. May it be. We have had and currently have members of this church serving and working in the government in various capacities. People working in the judicial system. People serving in the military. People serving in law enforcement and other various places of employment in the government. And we praise God for that. May the Lord give our brothers and sisters who work 
for the government wisdom. May they do and discharge their duty with uprightness and integrity. Pray that regularly for your brothers and sisters here. And we should think in these ways. This life is not ultimate. We know that. But it is good for us in as much as we are able to pursue justice for our neighbor. It is good for us in as much as we are able to seek to mitigate suffering. It is good for us to seek to protect the weak and the vulnerable, to facilitate flourishing, to promote goodwill. Christians through history have been motivated by their love of neighbor to do many good and significant things in this life. We could give countless examples, but the example of William Wilberforce comes to mind. He's a Christian. He has influence. He he holds office, and he works in as much as he is able to seek to end the slave trade. It's a good and honorable thing to do. People made in God's image benefit. And God is honored in pursuits like these. While for me, I'm called to be a pastor of this congregation. I'm called to preach the word, minister the sacraments, aid our church in practicing sound discipline. I will not be running for public office. But it may be a very good thing if some of you do. Think in those terms. The elders were joking recently. It's like, look, none of us are running for Senate, but we might think it's a good idea that you do that. Think about how you might serve your neighbor in your vocation. That was all by way of point two. Point three. I just want to make a few pastoral comments regarding unity and Christian liberty. Unity and Christian liberty. So the unity that we have as a local church is around one thing. Primarily, one person. His name is Jesus. He is the source of our unity. We agree about him. We agree that he is the forgiveness of our sins, that he is our righteousness, and that he is our eternal life. And we have a collective sense of our need of him that knits our hearts together. May that always be the case. Beyond that, we agree on the primary doctrines of the faith. For example, we believe that our God is triune, three in one, one in three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet one God. We agree on God's law and God's gospel. We also agree about other secondary doctrines that matter for having a church together. For example, we agree on the administration of the sacraments. We agree about church government. We agree about what we do even when we gather like this. These are the things that matter for our lives over the long haul. But there are boatloads, boatloads of other things, wisdom calls, over which we might disagree as members of the same church. That is not only fine, that's healthy. Now, there's going to be a lot more consideration of Christian liberty and issues of conscience in the coming chapter of Romans. But regarding government or government-related issues specifically, you guys remember COVID-19? Y'all remember that? 
the Lord was good to our church in the kind of unity that was maintained here through that pandemic. When people in the land and churches across the land were dividing, the Lord was very gracious in how he protected this congregation. And that was not because this is a monolithic group of people who agreed about how to handle COVID-19. As an elder of this church, I promise you that was not the case. There was a wide division of opinion on how best to respond to COVID. The thing that kept us through that was the fact that the pastors and the members of this congregation understood in spite of any personal discomfort, any personal dissatisfaction, in spite of any personal strongly held disagreements with federal or local mandates or protocol on this campus or at the YMCA where we were meeting, in spite of all of that, we knew that Christ is the tie that binds and that we're here for the gospel. We're here for the law and the gospel and the Lord's table and to sing and to pray. And we're here to lock arms together in this Christian life because we know we need each other. That's what held the church together. That is how we will continue to operate here. When it comes to government, own this, beloved. When it comes to government and the public square and how best to pursue justice in our land, you have to accept and embrace the following. You have to. Your brothers and sisters in the faith might be presented with the same set of variables that you are, and yet come to a different conclusion. You have to own that. You have to embrace it. Your brothers and sisters in the faith might be presented with the same set of variables and come to a different conclusion when it comes to government and the public square and how best to pursue justice in the United States of America. And we can and will live peaceably with each other. Amen? Amen. Last couple of things on unity and Christian liberty. You will hear God's law preached from this pulpit every week. And you will never hear politics preached from this pulpit, ever. This is not because your pastors do not care about America. It is not because we don't care about political matters. It is not because your pastors don't have personal thoughts on the role of government in the common kingdom. We have them. The reason that we will never preach politics from the pulpit is because we deal in law and gospel. We deal in sin and repentance. We are called to give oversight to the redemptive work of Christ at Covenant Baptist Church. We are called to preach God's word, administer the sacraments, and practice sound discipline for the salvation of God's people here. And as pastors of CBC, we aim to stay in our lane. We aim to not overstep. We aim to not overreach. We aim to never abuse pastoral authority by binding your conscience where the Bible does not clearly bind it. If we start doing that, make a lot of noise about it. 
And if need be, fire us, because that is not what pastors do. So all that by way of point three. Liberty, Christian liberty and issues of conscience. Point four. I just want to make a few pastoral comments now about the United States of America in particular. These will be brief. This is not exhaustive by any means. So we as citizens of the United States should submit to our governing authorities. We should respect them. We should pay our taxes. We should pray for our leaders. We should be thankful for the freedoms that we have in this land. We should be good citizens. We should exercise our civic duty. We should be thankful for the good in our nation's past. And we should be honest about the sin and the darkness in our past as well. It's not mutually exclusive. It's so sad when people act like it's one or the other. It is both simultaneously. There is good and there is systemic sin. Both are true. By the way, systemic sin shouldn't alarm you. Last time I checked, fallen humans institute systems and thereby sinful humans would institute systems with sin in them. That's okay to say. And there is a lot of good in our nation's history. We hold these things together. And this is how we think as Americans. It is good to be patriotic. It is good to be thankful for our nation. It is good to celebrate holidays like Memorial Day and July 4th and Veterans Day, etc. We should do that as citizens of this country. And we should not read the scriptures through the lens of America. Don't do that. We should not see God's purposes in the world being accomplished uniquely in and through the United States. And while we celebrate July 4 and Memorial Day and Veterans Day and all of those things, we do not functionally worship America here as many churchgoers do several times a year. It's not, not what we do. So those are just a few thoughts about the United States of America. Be grateful for your country. Serve honorably. Be a good citizen and hold these things in appropriate tension as we pledge our ultimate allegiance to Christ. May we commend him in the ways that we live, even in the common kingdom. Point five. This one will be a little bit longer. This is on the mission of the church. Point five, the mission of the church. So there's a lot of confusion in the United States pertaining to the mission of the church. Dead giveaway that this is true is when you hear a sentence like this. If the church would be the church, then America would look different. Dead giveaway that we've missed it. If the church would be the church, then America would look different. There's a lot wrapped up in such a statement. Wrapped up in that sentence is this principle, that inherent to the mission of the church as an institution is the transformation of culture and the overhauling of government. This kind of thinking is representative of a very utilitarian view of the faith. What's it doing? This is characteristic of revivalism in the history of America. We don't have time for that excursus. I would love to do it. Come talk to me at the back door. 
Revivalism is the reason why the church in the United States has hitched its wagon over and over again to social and political concerns. This has been a constant theme in the history of our nation. So that sentence, if the church would be the church, then America would look different, carries with it a lot of freight and baggage, as though the mission of the church, as God has given it, is the transformation of culture and the transformation of government. So I'm going to make a couple of statements and just talk about them for a moment. The mission of the church is not to overhaul the government, period. The mission of the church is not to overhaul the government. Even having said what I did earlier about Christians working in the government, the call to Christians is not the call to political activism. The writing of the apostles on the subject of government can be summarized as follows. This is Romans 13. This is 1 Peter 2. This is Titus 3. This is 1 Timothy 2. It is very simple. This is the ink that is spilled by the apostles regarding our relationship to government. Submit to them, the governing authorities, respect governing authorities, pay taxes, pray for your leaders. That's it. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. You heard that earlier. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Yes, that's in the scripture. Paul to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. To be ready for every good work. That's Titus 3.1. 1 Timothy 2.2. Pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This isn't in my notes. This is always dangerous. But you remember even when Paul goes before Agrippa in Acts 26, you remember this? I mean, Paul stands before a king, before a government official. What's his word? Ain't nothing about how to govern. His word is completely, I'm going to connect with a fellow Jew who knows the prophets, and I'm going to proclaim to him that Christ is the Savior, that Christ is the Messiah. That was his mission. So if me or one of the pastors of this church is called to a local or state level or federal level, whatever, to pray for our governing officials. The prayer is simple. Lord, give them wisdom. Lord, may they rule with justice and integrity and uprightness for the flourishing of this people. Amen. That's the prayer. But then when it comes to the personal engagement, our word is one word. Christ for you. Law and gospel. Let's not get these things twisted. I think Paul models that in Acts 26. Just a thought. There is no ink spilled in the New Testament about seeking to overhaul governing authorities. None. Next statement. This is maybe more offensive because it's broader. The mission of the church is not to transform the culture. The mission of the church is not to transform the culture. Now, none of what I'm about to say contradicts what we thought about earlier regarding serving our neighbor through our vocations. Don't hear me say that. Talking about the church as an institution. Just as there's not a drop of ink spilled in the New Testament about overhauling the government, there is not a drop of ink spilled in the New Testament about overhauling the culture. The assumption 
of Jesus and the apostles is that the church will be a counterculture. I mean, Jesus straight up told his disciples that we would encounter what in the world? Hatred, right? Not conformity to us, but hatred in the world is what you're going to experience. Yet in America, how many Christians act as though God must have been dethroned in heaven because the church is not the majority culture or because the church doesn't influence the majority of the voter base? May it never be. And don't get me wrong. We grieve evil and injustice and debauchery, whatever its forms. We grieve that. We grieve the blindness that is the result of sin and the schemes of the evil one. And we, as individual citizens of the land, do everything we can to mitigate these things. But we do not, as the church, lose sight of the mission. What is that? What is the mission of the church? It's very simple. I'm going to give you a very narrow definition of the church, and it is not meant to be offensive in any regard. I think you will amen. The mission of the church is this. The right preaching of the word of God, the right administration of the sacraments, and the right practice of discipline for the salvation of God's elect, period. The right preaching of the word of God, the right administration of the sacraments, the right practice of discipline, for the salvation of God's elect. That is the mission of the church. We preach Christ crucified. Why? So that sinners would be brought from death to life. From the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. We preach Christ We invite people from the world into the church to taste and see that the Lord is, in fact, very good and that Christ is, in fact, the Savior. And then we live life together in the covenant community of the church with a unique faith, a unique liturgy, and a unique ethic amongst us. We love our neighbors. And we look with anticipation for the return of Jesus because he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And for now, we acknowledge with the people of God from all time that for now we live in Babylon. And in as much as we can, we seek the good of the city. But we acknowledge that we're exiles and sojourners and that no matter how hard we try, we will not turn Babylon into the new Jerusalem. Only Christ can do that. And nor are we called to turn Babylon into the new Jerusalem. We preach Christ, we love our neighbor, and we go to sleep at night. I make all of these comments, just another unplanned pastoral comment from me. The reason these things matter, everything that I've said about binding consciences and the like, there are people who have, who have consciously not come to this church in spite of how much they love the preaching of the gospel here because we do not bind consciences on politics. There are people who have not come for that very reason. And often those same individuals have bucked against ways we do bind the conscience. For example, in exhorting all of us to forgive each other. It is ironic. 
how this happens. You take an issue with a sermon that would exhort us to forgive each other in Christ, but then you are also taking issue with the fact that we don't overstep our bounds and tell people how to vote. It's very interesting. That is off the cuff and something I would rarely never, I would rarely have ever say in public. I'm going to trust all of us that we can handle such a statement. We are here for Christ. We are here for the word and sacrament. We are here for the covenant community of the church. We are not here because of any political or national or social cause. We can be involved in those things as much as we want as citizens of this land, but it is not what unites us here. I trust that's clear. So I want to conclude, and I trust you want me to also. In this life, there will be suffering. In this life, there will be persecution. In this life, there will be tribulation, maybe even at the hands of the government. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, you realize that he said that just before he was going to die at the hands of the Roman government. And he said that just before he was going to die under the authority of a Roman governor named Pilate. Jesus would stand before that governor and say, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. We sang earlier about how after Jesus stood before Pilate and said these words, he let Roman soldiers nail him to a cross. We sung about how the dust of the ground that formed us all took the blood of the God-man as he died there, hanging on the tree. We sang about how the earth shook and the veil was torn in two. We sang about how he stood before the wrath of God and shielded us with his blood. So he did all of that in order to die for our sins He lived a life fulfilling the law so that he could be our righteousness. And when it was all over, he got up from the grave triumphant. Triumphant. Victorious. Having fulfilled the law for his people, having borne the punishment and the curse his people deserved. Here we go. Having conquered the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. He got up victorious. He would ascend after 40 days to the right hand of the Father, where he is seated even now. And all who are united to him by faith, that's you and that's me, will be brought safely by him to live with him forever in a new heaven and a new earth. Now that is the good news of what Jesus came to do, not what we do in response, but what he came to do, we trust him, we receive him, we believe in him. And for now, in him, we are called to be subject to governing authority. For now, to use the language of the Nicene Creed, we look for the resurrection of the dead in the life of the world to come. 
Now, when Jesus comes back, a few things of note here. When he comes back, he's going to wipe away every tear that we've cried. I don't know about you, but that matters to me. There's a lot of tears in this life, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain. Jesus knows, he cares, he's not distant and removed, and he will wipe our tears away. Praise the Lord. He loves us. He is gentle and lowly in heart, and he is tender toward his own. Amen? Think of him that way. Now, this is to his honor and glory. That gentle, tender, lowly, loving his own is not all that he is. There's more that we can say. If you are listening to this message today and you're worked up over government in the United States and how the church wants to navigate that and and what about injustice in the land and the trajectory of the country and you're thinking about all the bad things that happen and you're screaming inside for justice and for things to be made right. And man, isn't this, I mean, I, I put up something about this sermon content on Twitter and you get people coming out of the woodwork to tell you that this is all this is, is just a masquerade and an easy way to encourage people to be weak. Just encourage weakness, encourage frailty by the preaching of Christ and submission to government. You're just encouraging compliance, bro. Be a man. In light of today's subject matter, maybe this description of our king will encourage and strengthen your soul. The one who is gentle and lowly and loves you and me is this same one about whom I will read. I'm mindful of the Chronicles of Narnia, and you guys might know the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Mr. Beaver, and the kids are trying to figure out what in the world's going on in this enchanted land in which they find themselves, and they run into these animals that talk, and the beavers are really cool. And Mr. Beaver says to the kids, Aslan is on the move. And those who know the story know that Aslan is the lion, who's the king of Narnia, who's going to make all things right. He is the Christ figure in the book. So the kids are asking questions about the beaver, or excuse me, about Aslan to the beavers. And they say, uh, tell us about him. Is, is he safe? Mr. Beaver looks at them and says, of course he's not safe, but he's good. Listen to this in light of that. May your soul be filled with worship for King Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You're worried about justice? Listen to these words. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of the kings, 
the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Satan will follow them shortly thereafter. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Strong, wrong words about King Jesus, who is at the same time gentle and lowly and loves his own, who is a good shepherd, who seeks after the lost and saves us all. That he will not be mocked. And at the end of it, he says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Those robes are washed and made white in his blood. He's the reason we're here. Not America, not the government, not any of those things. We may disagree six ways from Sunday about public policy. We are here to Christ. May it always be. Let's pray.